the 101st Psalm, A Journey Through the Psalm. Look there with me. We're going to read it, then pray. Then we're going to jump in studying uh, this passage uh, together. Psalm 101, a Psalm of David. I hope everyone's well tonight. Look there with me. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. O when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are grateful for this opportunity to gather as a faith family, to fix our, our minds and our hearts upon you. Now, I pray, Lord, that as we study your word, you would speak, uh, Lord, with power, that you would apply your word to our hearts by your spirit, that we would be encouraged and challenged and changed. So, Lord, just have your way in our midst, and we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, the Psalms are wonderful. There are 150 chapters uh, in the Psalms. They are all hymns. They're written to be used in the corporate worship of the people of Israel. And if you were looking for a theme that ties these uh, Psalms together, these songs together, I think Dr. Kendall easily gets at it well when he writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So the Psalms remind us, remind you, remind me, that no matter what's going on in our lives, God is worthy of our trust and He's worthy of our praise. We see the psalmist dealing with a variety of issues. We see some on the mountaintop celebrating. We see some walking through deep, dark valleys. And in both uh, situations, the psalmists are praising the Lord and trusting the Lord. And that's what the psalmists uh, remind us to do. John Piper writes, The psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. So John Piper reminds us that the psalms connect with us uh, because we're emotional creatures. That's how God made us. And we take those emotions, the gamut of emotions that we experience, we bring them to our God. So Psalm 101 is about walking in integrity. That title comes from the phrase in verse 2 when David writes, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I my house. Now, let me give you two foundational statements, and then we're going to jump into Psalm 101. Two foundational statements, we're going to jump into it. The first foundational statement is this. The Lord is worthy of our song. Worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. Look what it says there in verse 1. I will sing of steadfast love, kessed, that, that, that Hebrew word kind of means love, mercy, grace, steadfastness, faithfulness, all in one. It's a beautiful word. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will 
make music. So David here is saying, because of who you are, because of the way you love us, because of your goodness to us, I will make music. I will sing to you. I think we talked last time about the importance of music, and music is a gift from God to shape our hearts and minds and worship the Lord with. And so the Lord is worthy of our song. That's why we get together. We sing week after week because God's worthy of us praising Him through music in song. That's why we listen to Caleb in our vehicles, right? Because God is worthy to be praised and worshiped in song. But notice, David doesn't stop there. And listen, a lot of Christians stop with the song. They stop with Sunday. But look what David says next. I'll sing of the steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. So David said, not only am I going to sing to praise your name, I'm going to live to praise your name. Did you know it's possible to come on a Sunday and sing praises, but not live for him on Monday? Do you know it's possible? Do you know it's possible to, to show up at church and go through the religious motions, do all the right stuff, smile, amen, shake hands, but when you walk out of the door, your, your life hasn't really been changed, you're not uh, more deeply in love with Christ, and it shows up in the way you live on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It, it, it's possible to sing a song without your heart truly engaged with the Lord. So not only is the Lord worthy of our song, the Lord is worthy of our consecrated life. That word consecrated means set apart. He's worthy of us living in a set apart way, setting apart our life so it, it honors Him and glorifies Him and pleases Him and points others to Him. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Notice that these words are part of a song and that there is no music like the harmony of a gracious life. No psalm so sweet as the daily practice of holiness. Reader, how fares it with your family? Do you sing in the choir and sin in the chamber? <laughs> Are you a saint abroad and a devil at home? For shame, Spurgeon writes, what we are at home, that we are indeed. He cannot be a good king whose palace is the haunt of vice, nor he a true saint whose habitation is a scene of strife, nor he is a faith, nor he a faithful minister whose household dreads his appearance at the fireside. Whoa. I had a, and this is a sad story, and I say it with a, with a, a, a sad heart, but I had a good friend in seminary, godly man. He's, he's been pastoring now in Ohio for, for years, and uh, we were, were good buddies uh, going through seminary together. We sat by each other in, in Greek, and he grew up in a, a Baptist home. His dad was a deacon in the church, uh, upstanding church member, but his dad was physically abusive to his kids. And he'd see his dad stand up and pray at church and go to deacon's meeting and sing in the great hymns of the faith, and he'd come home, and he was a devil in the house. Can you imagine how hard it would be as a young boy processing that? Like, this is Christianity? And here's what David's saying. If God is worthy of your song, He's also worthy of your life. If He's worthy of your Sunday, He's also worthy of your Monday, right? That's the point that David's making. And so, the Lord is worthy of our song, the Lord is worthy of our consecrated life. So those two ideas undergird this entire Psalm. So I'm going to give you two thoughts about this psalm or what this psalm is about. I want to point that out 
and uh, we'll make some application to our lives, and, and we'll be through. Number one, point number one, in this psalm, David, the writer of the psalm, exhibits a consuming desire for holiness. He exhibits a consuming desire for holiness. And this is a psalm found in a group of psalms known as the royal psalms. They're, they're written uh, to speak of, of the fact that God is the ultimate king. And David here is writing about his role as king, uh, and his idea here is that I, I'm a king worshiping the true king or the ultimate king, and, and so I want to be the kind of king that honors my king. That, that's his point in this psalm. Uh, Warren Wiersbe writes, The king of Israel was God's representative on earth and was expected to rule the way God commanded. The emphasis here in Psalm 101 is on the heart, for the heart of leadership is the leader's devotion to the Lord. This devotion results in a life lived blamelessly to, to the glory of the Lord. David was determined to be that kind of leader, and he opened the psalm with, I will, and repeated this promise eight more times. He made it clear. Now listen to this. This is a good word for the political world today. He made it clear that there must be no separation between the leader's personal life and his or her official life. Got one amen on that. The private and the public. Those two should not be at odds. That's what David's saying here. David wanted his reign to be characterized by loving kindness and justice, for this is the way God rules the world. So he wanted his his reign to reflect the reign of the ultimate king. And that's how he wanted to reign. That's how he wanted to live. So in this psalm, David determines to live with four realities, or, or, or four goals, if you will. First of all, David determined to live with holiness of mind. Holiness of mind. Look what he says there in verse 2. I will... I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? So notice here that David is singing to the Lord, but he's also thinking. I will ponder, I will meditate on a certain way of life, a certain way of living. I will ponder on the way that is blameless. So he's talking here about holiness of mind, his uh Thought life. That, that's how he wanted to live. And notice what happens when you're pondering the right way. The second part of that verse is, I will walk with integrity of heart. So, so holiness begins in the mind. That's where it all starts. Proverbs says, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. In other words, whatever controls your thought life is, is eventually going to show up in your heart, which eventually will lead to the kind of things you do, right? Uh, you, you can look at anyone's actions and you can trace them back, good or bad, you can trace those actions back to the mind. And David's here saying that I will, I will ponder the blameless way. I'll meditate on, I'll think deeply about the, the right way to live. I want my mind to be engaged with what is good and decent and right. It reminds me of what Paul said over in Philippians 4. Turn there with me. Philippians chapter 4. Hold your place in Psalm 101. Verse 8, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So he's saying the things that ought to fill up our minds are things that are good, honorable, just, 
worthy, uh, God-honoring. Those are the things that ought to fill up our minds. But the sad reality of, of so many of our lives is we allow a bunch of junk to fill up our lives, in, in our minds. And we wonder why we're not actively engaged at the heart level in serving God. It starts in the mind. Now, I was a soccer player growing up and loved the sport. And when it comes to soccer and most sports, you need to have a, a, a good defense and a good offense. If you have a good defense, no one can score on you. But if you never score, you're never going to win. You can tie, but a tie is like kissing your sister, right? It's, there's, nothing, there, 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 you know, there, there's nothing to that. But if you have a good offense without a good defense, you can score some goals, but they're going to score goals too, and you're probably going to lose, right? To be a good soccer player, you, you need to have a or soccer team, you need to have a good defense and a good offense. You need to have both if you're going to be good. And it's the same way when it comes to our mind, right? If we're going to have minds that are focused on purity and holiness, we need to have a, a defensive strategy and an offensive strategy. So when I say defensive strategy, I mean we need to, we need to make sure that we have a defensive mentality concerning what we allow to get into our mind. And things get into our mind basically in two ways, through the ears and through the eyes, Right? And so we've got to control, we're going to talk some more about this in just a moment, but we gotta, we've got to control what comes into our mind defensively, but then we've got to be offensive. We, we need to be in the Word. We need to be thinking about Christ. We need to be thinking about uh, the truths of the faith. We need to think about uh, God's activity in human history and in our life and in our world today. We need to be thinking about things that are good and pure. And if we'll have a, a defensive and an offensive strategy, then we can begin to live with holiness of mind, which will affect our heart, which will show up in our actions. Now listen to me, the mind's a battlefield, right? I'll never forget, one of the, one of the sermons I clearly remember from my pastor growing up, F.T. Rogers, was his sermon on Ephesians 5, spiritual warfare, and Ephesians 6, uh, spiritual warfare. And he said, he said, uh, he, he talked about the fiery darts of the wicked and the shield of faith which extinguishes them. And I remember him standing on the platform going, Satan will throw those fiery darts, fiery darts, fiery darts. You ever been sitting there minding your own business? And all of a sudden, something just awful comes into your mind? Am I the only one that ever happens to? Anybody in here? Where'd that come from? Fiery darts. Now you got a choice, all right? I can, I can take hold of that thought and, and meditate on it and ponder it and think about it and turn it over in my mind, or I can turn my focus to the cross and capture that thought and get it out of my mind, right? Defensive and offensive strategies are important for holiness of the mind. So how's your thought life? What's going on in your head? You know, the thought life is interesting because it's, it's private. I can't tell what you're thinking, and you can't tell what I'm thinking, so there's a privacy there, but there's really not, is there? Because eventually it comes out in your life. So there's a, a, a holiness of mind. Secondly, David determines to live with, with holiness of heart. Look at what he says in verse 2. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will 
walk with integrity of heart within my house. He's saying, I want my heart. Now, in, in the Hebrew mindset, the heart was really the center of your life. It, it really uh, deals with your emotions and your will and your intellect kind of all rolled up in one. So David's saying, I want the center of my life to be integrity. I want the center of my life to be uh, focused on what's right, not what's wrong, doing what honors and glorifies the Lord. He wanted to have integrity of heart. Over in Proverbs, it says that you and I ought to guard our hearts because the issues of life flow from it, right? We need to guard our hearts and have holiness of heart. Our heart needs to be filled with Jesus and with holiness and what's right, not with things that are wicked and evil and wrong. That word integrity is an important word. I'll never forget, uh, I was fishing uh, when I was a teenager. I was fishing on the Santa Fe River in Florida, beautiful, clear, spring-fed river, and we were bass fishing on that river, me and my dad. And, and uh, he began to talk about his workplace and uh, some, some practices he had seen from some other people in sales. He was in sales, some other folks in sales, and some things that were dishonest and not right, you know, kind of cheating on expense reports and things like that. And, and we were having this conversation about, you know, what's right and what's wrong and being honest and having integrity. And uh, I'll never forget Dad saying this. He said, Wade, integrity is who you are when no one's watching. That's good, isn't it? And David's saying, when no one's watching but God, I want my heart to be a heart of integrity, a heart that reflects what's right, what's true, what's noble, what's honorable, what's godly, not things that are wrong. And again, the mind is connected with the heart. And so David says, I want to have holiness of mind and holiness of heart. There's a third thing here. David determined to live with holiness of the eyes. Look what he says in verse 3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. What a verse. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Can I tell you this? Satan is absolutely dismantling the home in our culture. That's where his target is, because if he can get the home, he can destroy the foundational institution of society. You don't have strong homes, you don't have strong churches, you don't have strong churches, you don't have strong, a strong nation. He's dismantling the home. And his primary weapon are immoral things that people put before their eyes. It's destroying teenagers, it's destroying marriages, and it's a subtle yet constant temptation in everyone's life to look at things that we ought not to look at. Now, this could entail looking at explicit images that are pornographic. It could entail watching TV shows where you're laughing about things that God hates. Or it can tell music that you're listening to that is ungodly, but it stirs something up in you 
uh, in, in a sensual way. I mean, there's, there's all kind of ways this, this happens, but, but we've got to be careful about what we put before our eyes. Very, very careful. My brother is in computer science. Uh, he gra- uh, graduated from the Air Force Academy, got his master's PhD. He's, he's the brains of the, of the uh, Humphreys boys. And uh, he did all this stuff, and he retired from the Air Force. He was in cybersecurity, still is. He's teaching at Covenant College in Chattanooga. Brilliant guy. He's always in front of his computer. And I remember one time I was in his office, and, and uh, right above his computer screen, he had Psalm 101, verse 3, typed out. As I'm on this screen all the time, I'm going to remind myself I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. So that's the challenge. David's saying, if if I'm going to live with integrity, if I'm going to be a good king and a good ruler, if I'm going to have a a life that is uh, pure and, and pleasing to God, I've got to be careful about the things that come before my eyes. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I want to have a, a holiness of the eyes. And so we need, to, we need to practice that. We need to make sure that's a reality in our life. And, and if, if you're in here and you've fallen and you've messed up when it comes to what you put before your eyes, you say to the Lord tonight, I'm sorry, I blew it. That's not who I need to be or what I need to be about. Would you cleanse me of my sin? Would you forgive me? And would you now fill me with your spirit and give me the wherewithal so that by your grace I can begin to have victory in this area in my life? Listen to me. If you are filled, if you're a Christian, you're filled with the Spirit of God. And if you're filled, I'm going to talk about this Sunday. If you're filled with the Spirit of God, stop living defeated all the time. You, you, listen, you can go on the offense now. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God within you, the Word of God before you, the, the body of Christ around you to encourage you. Stop living a defeated life and start taking some enemy territory. Amen? Amen. Holiness of the eyes. David says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Number four, David determined to live with holiness in his associations. His associations. Now, he's not talking about his homeowner association here, okay? He's talking about his relationships, who he allows to have influence in his life. And look what he says in verse 3. I'll set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. I'm not going to laugh at those who are ungodly or, or participate with those who are ungodly. I'm not going that direction. I, I don't like it at all. I hate the work of those who are ungodly who've turned their back to the Lord. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I don't want it around me. If someone is perverse, if someone is ungodly, I don't need that in my life. I will know nothing of evil, he says. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. But then he says in verse 6, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land. Those that are faithful to the Lord, I want them close to me. That they may dwell with me, he says. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. I want those kind of people around me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. I don't want deceitful people around me. 
No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. So David's saying, here's the kind of king I want to be. I want to be influenced by faithful, godly people, and I don't want to be influenced by ungodly, unfaithful people. Here's how Proverbs says it in Proverbs 13, verse 20. I quote this verse all the time. You ready? Whoever walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, is that not a relevant verse? We all know in this room, just from life experience, that's true, don't we? He walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So they've said, I want, I want holiness in my association. Now, this leads to a bit of tension. I've talked about this before because the Bible says Jesus was a friend of sinners, right? He spent time with them. He, he taught them and loved them and, and saved them and forgave them and, and changed them. So wait, how in the world are we supposed to stay away from ungodly folks and yet still love sinners and point them to Jesus? How does that work? Pretty good question, isn't it? Here's the answer. You ready? It's an issue of influence. Who's influencing who? If you're around a group of folks, even if your intentions are good, but they begin to influence you in the wrong direction, maybe you think you're strong, but if you're around the wrong group of folks long enough, and you're not accountable, you're not intentional, and you're just kind of hanging out, pretty soon their values, their, their way of living and thinking and talking will, will envelop you and pull you in the wrong direction. I played... Uh, soccer in college, and, and you guys here that have played sports, you know what the locker room's like. Language is awful. And I, I went into college as a born-again Christian, and I was uh, playing soccer. I was in the locker room. Before I knew it, I, I, I found myself talking uh, in an awful, ungodly way. I mean, they, And I remember one day I almost had like an out-of-body experience. It's almost like I was looking down on myself saying those things. And it was just kind of a moment where I thought, that's not right. I'm a follower of Christ. I can't believe those things are coming out of my mouth, and I'm ashamed of it today. But I'm telling you, when I was around those guys in the locker room, and I wasn't being intentional, I wasn't trying to influence them in the right direction. They were influencing me. So if you're around folks that, that don't love the Lord, make sure that you're intentional about influencing them, and you have some boundaries in your life so they can't influence you. It may be as simple as, hey, if I'm going to hang out with a group of folks that aren't the right folks for me to hang around with in terms of what they're doing, I'm going to take a brother or sister in Christ with me, and we're going to go in together and, and, and love them in Jesus' name. That's simple, isn't it? I'm not going to go by myself. I don't trust myself with these, these folks, right? So I'm going to, I want to take somebody with me so we can, we can tag team and go in together and, and hold each other accountable, right? Share Jesus. Influence them. Don't let them influence us. So it's always a, a question of influence. If you can go into a, a situation and you can point them to Jesus and love them and speak truth to them and stand strong on your convictions, that's wonderful. But if you begin to see them chipping away at your convictions and begin to kind of pull you in the wrong direction. And by the way, ungodly folks love to get Christians to trip up. 
They love it. They love to see you fall. It just makes them feel better about their own behavior, right? So they're going to try. So if you, if you begin to see them chipping away at your convictions and your morals and what you know to be right, then you need to, you need to put up some boundaries and say, we're not going to hang out that way anymore. Hey, meet me at the point we'll drink some coffee together because I love you, but I'm not coming over here anymore for a while unless I bring somebody with me. Does that make sense? You've got to have some, some boundaries, some wise, loving boundaries. So should we love sinners? Yes, Jesus loved sinners. But he loved them enough to, to speak truth to them, right? And to point them to salvation. So we need to have holiness of mind, holiness of heart, holiness of the eyes, holiness uh, in our associations. Because he walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer Harm. Now, here's the second thing. This psalm not only exhibits a consuming desire for holiness, this psalm foreshadows the reign of the Messiah. This psalm, as I said earlier, is one of the royal psalms. That's kind of book four. They're a collection of psalms that are about the kings. They're royal and about the, the kingship of our God. They are meant, in part to look forward to the promised king of kings. So whenever you're seeing a king in, uh, in Israel or Judah in the Old Testament, it, it foreshadows the ultimate king, King Jesus. Does that make sense? In fact, the Lord promised David, from your descendants, I'm going to send a king who will reign forever. He's going to reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Of course, that speaks to Jesus. He's the one that came through the lineage of David, and he came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to the Father. The earth is now his footstool. One day he will return and set everything right. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and his kingship will never come to an end. He'll reign forever. He's the fulfillment of these psalms. And this psalm looks forward to the, the promised king. Now, some of you may read this psalm and know your Bible a little bit, and you say, this is David writing. He wanted integrity of his heart and his mind and his eyes and his associations. I remember a story where one day he's walking around on his rooftop, and he begins to gaze at a woman bathing who's not his wife, her husband was away at war. Her husband, Uriah, was one of his, his mighty men, one of David's close friends and colleagues and brothers in arms. David liked what he saw, turned it over in his mind. He called for her, committed adultery with her. She found out shortly thereafter she was with child, David's child. David knew this would look bad. He tried to cover it up. When he couldn't cover it up the way he wanted to, he finally consented to have Uriah killed. Murder to cover up his adultery. So right there in that one story, you see David breaking at least three of the Ten Commandments, right? Committed adultery, he lied, and he murdered to cover it up. Cover it up. And yet he writes Psalm 101. You see, just like you and me, David falls short of the standard, doesn't he? 
we fall short of this standard, but aren't you glad that the King of Kings doesn't? That he perfectly lives out and lived out holiness of mind, holiness of heart, holiness of the eyes, and holiness in his associations. Here's what that means. This means that Jesus reigns with perfect integrity. Look with me. Hold your place. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 1. This is a prophetic passage looking forward to the reign of the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. The Bible says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And so that prophetic passage tells us the kind of king Jesus would be. A righteous king, always doing the right thing, always passing the right judgment, always acting with perfect equity. He would be a, a, a king who feared the Lord and lived with great wisdom and understanding, honoring the Lord with his life. So yeah, David fell short. He wanted to be a king of integrity, but he blew it. But King Jesus, from the lineage of David, the one David foreshadowed, he never fell short and never will fall short. He reigns now with perfect integrity. He always does the right thing. He always makes the right call. And when he returns one day, he's going to set everything right. I don't know about you, but I get tired of, 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 of a lot of the evil and injustice and oppression and brokenness I see in our world. Isn't it good to know that one day Jesus will return riding on a white horse, and, and when he comes back, he won't come humble, born of a, a, a virgin teenage Hebrew girl, he's going to come as the king of a great army that will set everything right. That's, that's the point here, that because he is perfect, because he perfectly lives out Psalm 101 with integrity, he reigns with perfect integrity. You can trust Jesus to be your Lord and Savior because he is a perfect king. Third, Jesus redeems with perfect integrity. He redeems with perfect integrity. Now again, we look at Psalm 101. We want to live with integrity. We want to do the right thing. We want to live for the Lord. But we've all fallen short, haven't we? I mean, just look at the list. Holiness of mind. I've blown that. How about you? Holiness of heart. I've blown that. Anybody else in here? Am I the only sinner in the room? I... Holiness of the eyes, I've looked at things I shouldn't have looked at. Holiness of the associations, yes, I've been influenced by 
folks I shouldn't have been influenced by. Yes, I've, I've, I've not lived out Psalm 101 perfectly. I want to live that kind of life, and I want the, 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 the ethos of Psalm 101 to, to drive my life moving forward. I want to walk in integrity. How about you? I want the Spirit of God to use the Word of God and the church of God to help me to, to live a life of integrity so I can glorify the Lord, but I know I've fallen short. And I need a Savior. And isn't it good to know that the king that David foreshadows, King Jesus, lived with perfect integrity so he could save those who don't have perfect integrity. He left the splendor and glory of heaven. He took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect, matchless life. His time on the earth, he never thought a wrong thought, never looked at a wrong thing, never performed a wrong deed, never allowed the wrong thing in his heart. He always did the right thing. He was sinless, the Lamb of God, blameless and pure, which meant he could go to the cross and instead of bearing the wrath of God for his sins, he could take your sins and my sins on himself and bear the wrath of God for us. The reason, listen, the reason Jesus could die for us is because he didn't have to die for himself. The reason he could be our substitute is because he was sinless, and he could take our sin on himself and, and, and pay the price you and I deserve to pay. That's what's so remarkable about Jesus. Because he lived with perfect integrity on this earth, he could go to the cross and die for our sins and redeem those that have fallen short like me. Because he died on the cross in our place and paid the penalty we deserve to pay, because he rose from the dead after he was buried in that borrowed tomb, because he's alive today, he will redeem, he will forgive, he will save any imperfect person like me that comes to him and says, I need you to be my Savior. I believe in you and what you did for me is my only hope. That's how you're saved. And we all need that because we've all fallen short of Psalm 101. Amen? But Jesus didn't. Here's how it says it over in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was perfect, but he took our sin. So we who are imperfect can get his righteousness as a gift and be in a position of right standing before a holy God, forgiven and robed in the perfection of Jesus who perfectly lived out Psalm 101. And so here's what we need to do with Psalm 101. We need to read it and be challenged by it. We need to say, this, this, this is what I want my life to look like. I want to have that same consuming desire for holiness. I want to live a holy life because I know it honors the Lord and it's the pathway to fullness of joy. And, and so I, I want to live a, a Psalm 101 kind of life. But you also need to remember that you've already fallen short. But Jesus lived a Psalm 101, 101 life perfectly. So now you can be saved by him. Isn't that good news? That's what Psalm 101 is about. And so the Lord is worthy of our song. The Lord is worthy of our consecrated life. 
And he's worthy because he has redeemed fallen sinners like you and me.